What is your picture of God, and how might that affect the way you understand salvation? We will explore that question and more today in episode 5, entitled, What Must I Do to Be Saved? Welcome to Adventology, the podcast dedicated to helping you find answers to the big questions of life so that you can live a life of influence that ultimately impacts the world for eternity. Each week, we will explore a different chapter in the story of humanity that centers around Jesus Christ and culminates at His second coming. Whether you know Jesus already or are simply curious about what the Bible has to say about the end of the world, this podcast has something for you. Here now is the host of Adventology, Travis Walker. Have you ever sat in the quietness of your own spirit and examined your thoughts about God? Not the textbook answers you might write down on a quiz, but your true heart feelings and beliefs about who God is. If so, when you picture him, what do you imagine he is like? I think it is an important question because our view of God says a lot about who we are as individuals. Is God someone who is inviting or is he distant? What expression do you imagine is on his face when he's looking at you? I suppose the most important question is, who is God to you? A force? A concept? A genie in a bottle? Is God just a means to an end? A means to get what you really want in life here and the hereafter? Or could God actually be an end in himself? I have to admit, I have really had to wrestle with my picture of God. It is difficult accepting that he cares deeply about my well-being, the quality of my life, and that he is genuinely interested in guiding my steps each day and my future. A distant God is much more comfortable for me, one that I can call on the weekends to catch up with, but isn't around much during the week. That would be much easier for me to relate to because that was my experience with my dad growing up. When God is distant, then he can become more of a mental construct rather than a real person I actually have to interact emotionally with. When God is distant, then I can maintain a polite, transactional relationship without too much commitment. Transactional relationships are predictable, formulaic, and are less risky. I know when I'm in a transactional relationship, I'm more concerned about the outcome what the person will do for me if I hold up my end of the agreement rather than the quality of the relationship itself. Thus, when I view God as distant, it is natural for me to view a relationship as transactional. I follow the formula and voila, out comes whatever I want, including my eternal salvation. I don't know about you, but when I first became a Christian, I was taught to understand salvation as a formula. In fact, I was taught it's as easy as A, B, C, accept, believe, and confess. Then I just had to finish it off with the sinner's prayer and I was in. Heaven, here I come. But afterward, my reality turned out to be much different than I had expected. On the one hand, I had been told I now have eternal life. On the other hand, my life hadn't really changed that much at all. I said one thing and did another. Clearly, something wasn't adding up. But what was it? 
So there is this classic fable that maybe you've heard of called The Emperor's New Clothes. The story goes something like this. There once was an emperor who was very vain and everywhere he went he enjoyed nothing more than showing off his fine new clothes. One day two swindlers came to the emperor's city. They said they were weavers claiming that they knew how to make the finest cloth imaginable. Not only were the clothes and patterns extraordinarily beautiful, but in addition, this material had the amazing property that it was to be invisible to anyone who was incompetent or stupid. The emperor thought it would be wonderful to have clothes made from that cloth so that he would know which of his men were unfit for their positions. So he immediately gave the two swindlers a great sum of money to weave their cloth for him. As time went by, the emperor became curious about the progress of his new clothes. But fearful that he himself might not be able to see the clothes, he sent his most honest, trusted advisor to check in on the work for him. And of course, when the advisor showed up, he saw nothing. The swindlers were pretending to do all kinds of things that looked like work. Embarrassed and not wanting to be exposed as incompetent, he pretended right along with the swindlers and reported back to the emperor what he had pretended to see. The emperor sent other officials as well to observe the weaver's progress. They too were startled when they saw nothing, and they too reported back to him how wonderful the material was, advising him to have it made into clothes that he could wear in a grand procession. Eventually, the whole kingdom was pretending for fear of being exposed as incompetent and stupid. The emperor had been told his clothes were real, and although his own experience told him clearly he was wearing no clothes, in the end, his pride forced him to parade before his entire kingdom completely naked, and the swindlers walked off with a fortune. Can you relate to the story? Strange as it may sound, it wasn't long after I accepted the ABC salvation formula that I started to wonder if I was like the emperor in the story and the swindlers were the leaders of the church. I had been sold a formula that was supposed to guarantee my salvation and eternal life. I had made the transaction. For a while I had believed I was clothed. But experientially, I felt the cold draft all around me, and eventually I became sure I was naked. I had my ticket to heaven, but where was the love, the joy, the peace, the patience that were supposed to come with it? Where was the new life? Then I began to think, was it just I that was naked? Or were all the other Christians walking around pretending like they were clothed as well, fearful of being exposed as phonies? Was the whole religion one giant scam? It can definitely feel that way when we are viewing salvation merely as a get-out-of-hell-free card. But thankfully, I didn't give up. Instead, I began to re-examine my picture of God and to question whether what I had been taught was correct. Was eternal life the result of a transaction with God? Thankfully, I eventually came across this passage in the Gospel of John. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
This passage was a complete paradigm shift for me. According to Jesus, eternal life does not come from knowing a formula about God. It is actually knowing him personally, not a transaction, but a relationship, not a prize, but a person. Salvation is oneness with God the Father through Jesus Christ. This is hard for us to get our minds wrapped around because most of our earthly relationships are based on the expectation of return on investment. We invest our lives into people who in some way, shape, or form give us something we value in return. Thus, we assume God is the same way and approach him as such. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, it records one such encounter between a rich young ruler and Jesus. We can read about it in chapter 10. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. The question of the rich young ruler couldn't have been more relevant for himself and for us today. The question was, what must I do to be saved? The assumption behind the question, of course, is that salvation, like other things in his life, is transactional by nature. The only thing the rich young ruler is concerned about is what he must do to get what he wants, eternal life. Interestingly enough, presented with a transactional question, Jesus provides him with a transactional answer. He says, keep the commandments. It is the breaking of the law that defines sin, and of course, the wages of sin is death. So it only makes logical sense that if the rich young ruler is looking for a transactional solution to his inquiry, that Jesus would provide him with that logical answer. The condition of eternal life has always been obedience to the law. The surprising response to Jesus is the claim that he has kept these commandments since his youth. In other words, he already sees himself as a pretty good person. Maybe what he was really asking was whether or not he had done enough to earn eternal life already. Maybe his good life and good deeds have already earned his position in heaven and secured that which he not only desired, but deserved. However, it is at this point that Jesus reveals to the rich young ruler his own incomplete understanding of salvation. We pick the story back up in verse 21. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. Jesus loved him. He wasn't just trying to give him the right answer to his question now. He was trying to win his heart. It is as if Jesus is saying to him, you can continue living with a distorted understanding of who God is. You can continue walking around in your fine, invisible clothes, deceiving yourself concerning your own nakedness 
and fooling no one around you. Or you can accept the robes of a humble servant and follow me. There is no vainglory on this pathway, but there is, in fact, a real relationship with me and my Father. And if you come through me, you will have eternal life, not because of what you have done, but because of who I am. I am the one and only Son of the Father, and I have perfectly kept his commandments. The Father and I are one, and when you follow me, you become one with the Father through me and are adopted into his family as one of his children. This was not what the rich young ruler had expected. He did not realize what he had been asking for when he asked, what must he do to inherit eternal life? He wasn't interested in a relationship with God. He was only interested in what God could do for him. And so, the story concludes, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What about you? Can you see eternal life as the product of a relationship with God? And not just any relationship with God, but from the relationship Jesus shared with his Father? What if God were more than a force, a concept, or a genie in a bottle? What if God truly was Father? And not just a Father, not just our Father, but your Father, who loves you with an everlasting love. And what if his love for you wasn't divided proportionate to the number of his children, but was lavished upon you as if you were the one and only son, the one and only daughter of God? And what if God loved you so much that he was willing to risk everything just to reestablish a relationship with you? What if he wanted nothing more from you than yourself? Not your obedience, your money, or your worship. What if he simply wanted you to be with you and you with him? How would you relate to a God like that? A God who doesn't look at you in your flaws, but instead looks at you through his son. The scriptures tell us, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, because of Jesus, when God looks at you, he doesn't see the shame of your nakedness or any of the pretend clothing you wear to try to cover up your nakedness. Instead, he sees the richest, most beautiful set of clothes ever purchased, washed in the blood of Jesus. And therefore, he is able to say, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And as amazing and unbelievable as this sounds, this is the gospel. The scriptures tell us, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Thus, it is as our Father that God says to us, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I was the one who molded you in the depths of the earth and knitted you together. You are my masterpiece, a one-of-a-kind priceless gem in whom I find favor. I have carved you in the palms of my hand and have covered you with the shadow of my wings. You are the one 
I rejoice in. I am your father and I have plans to give you a future and a hope. You see, the swindlers will come along and tell you to do something or pay something to get this gift, to experience the adoption into God's family. But the truth is, you just need to accept it. So will you believe it? Will you accept it? If so, then follow Jesus. Thanks for listening to this episode of Adventology. Our goal on this podcast is for you to be ready for Jesus. And the best way to be ready for Jesus is to spend time getting to know him. Knowing Jesus is everything. That is why we spent the time today studying what the gift of salvation truly is. But don't just take my word for it. Study it out for yourself. And for a hands-on experience, I encourage you to check out our website, adventology.com, or shoot me a message on Facebook or Twitter and ask me a question. Also, if you like this episode, share it with a friend. Or better yet, please leave a rating and review on SoundCloud, iTunes, or from wherever you downloaded this podcast. It really makes a difference. Every time you leave a positive rating, it helps others experience the same blessing you have. All right, I look forward to seeing you back next time on episode six when we explore God's plan for spending more time with you. Maranatha.